You're listening to Engaging Leader. Today we're talking about how conscious leaders build value. Speaking with Fred Kaufman, author of Conscious Business. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. Many of you are aware of the book, First Break All the Rules by Marcus Buckingham and Kurt Kaufman, in which they reported on the results of a 25-year research project by the Gallup Organization on organizational effectiveness. And that study focused on a single question, what do the most talented employees need from their workplace? And after surveying over a million individuals from a broad range of companies and organizations, the study concluded talented employees need great managers. So your best talent may choose your firm for a wide variety of reasons. Charismatic leadership, great benefits, great training. But ultimately, what's going to impact how long that employee stays and how productive they are is their leader, their especially their immediate manager. So how do you become a great leader? Well, to help us address that question, our guest today is Fred Kaufman, author of Conscious Business, how to Build Value Through Values. It's a book that's been translated to more than 10 languages and received numerous awards. Fred was a professor of management accounting and control systems at MIT, and today he is co-founder of the international consulting firm Axiolent and professor of leadership and coaching at the University of Francisco Marroquin. Fred, welcome to Engaging Leader. A pleasure to be with you, Jesse. Fred, can you tell us how your experience, first of all, growing up under a dictatorship in Argentina, caused you to understand consciousness? Well, when I was uh, a young uh, man in Argentina, I lived under a dictatorship. But the strange thing is that I, I never knew I was living under a dictatorship. Of course, I knew it intellectually, but the whole world was so covered with propaganda that it was like living in a dream. Uh, you know, when you're in a dream, you walk through walls <laughs> and it seems normal. Uh, and then you wake up and you, 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 know, you, you ask yourself, how, how could I not realize this was a dream? I was flying, I was walking through walls. That's not possible. But when you're in the middle of the dream, it's all normal. It all seems perfectly logical and realistic. And it, it was a similar experience in Argentina where we all knew that things were not right. And yet there was this collective illusion that things were okay, that the laws were being upheld, that the government was functional. And yet uh, it was a pretty bloody dictatorship um, that had concentration camps, torture camps, killing people. And I was in the middle of it and I did not know. Hmm. So it, it struck me how easy it is to be deluded, to live in a fantasy. If I can make a metaphor with the movie The Matrix, that, that uh, one might think uh, one is living in the real world, but uh, as Morpheus tells Neo, uh, you're a slave and you're living in a dream. So I devoted pretty much the rest of my life uh, to, to waking up 
and then inviting other people to look around and, and see what's true and then base their lives on true principles, not in illusory fantasies. And you've discovered that the delusion is very real in the business world as well. Well, yes. That was the amazing thing. I, I, I left Argentina quite disgusted and came to the United States, which was like my, my glorious dream of, of freedom and, and the country that had given the declaration of independence to the world and these truths to be self-evident, that all men are equal, that they deserve respect, that they deserve to live in, in liberty. And then when I finished uh, my, my studies at Berkeley and went to MIT, started working with corporations, I saw that even though these principles were they claimed people would speak about them and espouse them quite vehemently, their day-to-day -day practice was quite different. Um, not in a criminal way, but just in a lack of respect, lack of consideration, attempting to manipulate one another, doing a whole bunch of things that nobody would espouse openly, but in action, they seem to be standard practice. And you also, in, in the book, you talk about the inability to expose reality. For example, in Argentina, when Argentina was at war with the UK over the Falcon Islands, and every morning the propagandist papers would say, hey, we're winning, we're winning, and then all of a sudden one day, well, we lost. And you, you said you <laughs> yeah. saw that You saw that in, in business a lot too, where teams were deluding themselves about how good things were every day, and then one day they finally said, well, we lost. We're, the business is shutting down. We're, we're, we're downsizing. Yeah. Well, um, that happens at a team level, but it happens personally in our lives every day as well. I mean, just remember last time that somebody defaulted on a commitment to you, that someone said they were going to give something to you and they didn't show up or, or they called you at the last moment and said, oh, sorry, um, I didn't make it. Now, I can guarantee that this person knew a couple hours before, at least, and maybe a few days before, that they would not be able to fulfill their commitment. Yet, they deluded maybe themselves, but certainly they lied to you by not telling you in advance that there was a problem and they would not be able to deliver. Now, that's so normal that we don't even think about that. But that's a little bit of fraud that creeps into our lives and every person accommodates this. We all say, well, it's okay, you know, that's just standard practice. But, but that, that's not right. If you think about it, you say, hmm, it's possible to live with a much higher level of integrity. And if I say I'm going to do something, the moment I discover my resources are not enough or, or I hit a problem or whatever, that is the moment where I am compelled by ethics to call my creditor and let them know that the delivery is at risk. So I, I feel obliged to call you, to let you know, to negotiate with you. What can we do to minimize the harm to you in case something happens? And then we move together into a recommitment. This happens in organizations every day, millions of times. And it's a huge opportunity for people to wake up and say, hey, you know, we, we can change this. Because this is not saying you have to be Superman and deliver on every commitment. That, that would be inhuman. Whenever we make commitments, they are at risk. We're, we're promising always about the future. But we can make an ethical commitment to integrity. That is a human possible standard 
and we rarely fulfill it, which is a shame. In the book, you say that it's it doesn't really work for leaders to just tell their people what they need to do, that really the leaders need to live out the qualities of consciousness. And so you use seven qualities to distinguish consciousness. And we can say that's these are conscious things that employees need to be, but it really is seven aspects of conscious leadership. And first of all, you discuss three character attributes, the first being unconditional responsibility. Is that an example of that, what you were just talking about? Yes. The unconditional responsibility is taking ownership of the promise and uh, acting when something goes wrong. Leaders have a tremendous temptation to pontificate, to tell other people what they ought to do. But uh, as the American poet said, um, what you do speaks so loudly that I cannot <laughs> hear what you, uh, what you say. And uh, words are cheap. Actions are expensive. And uh, the value of a signal, it's its cost. So that, that would be the first, even before unconditional responsibility, the first realization is uh, you cannot tell people what to do in, in any way that will be effective. What you can do is demonstrate what is meaningful to you and inspire people to follow you. But it always starts with yourself. And the first principle of starting with yourself is that your life is not about what happens to you. What makes a difference and what makes your life yours is the way you respond to what happens. Uh, yet the temptation is always to look outside and to explain whatever happens based on forces out of control. The, the easiest example to see that is when someone arrives late to a meeting and you ask them, uh, well, what happened to you? Well, well, what do people tell you, Jesse, when when someone is late to a meeting? I can you? tell you what I tell other people because I, I this is one of my own shortcomings. I am habitually five minutes late to just about everything, and usually there is something that came up. Uh, I can I can point to something in that last minute problem that came up and prevented me from leaving when I should have left. Exactly. Ah, oh, beautiful. Thank, thank you for being so open, because that makes it very interesting. So when you say the problem came up and prevented me, you see, that, I mean, <laughs> if you look at that language, it's like the problem grabbed you and it tied you down and it really <laughs> prevented you from leaving. There's one person who's sorely missing in that story, and that's you. I mean, you, right. as, you as a subject. Uh, because when the problem came up, I mean, and I'm not saying this is this is a bad decision, but you chose to deal with the problem and you chose to stay to to deal with this problem. Now, th again, let me be very clear. I am not holding an inhuman standard that you never deal with problems or you should fulfill your promises no matter what. I don't believe that. There are problems that are worth dealing with and they're worth being late for. Mm -hmm. But it's very different when you say, I chose to stay when the problem came up. You see, the, the problem coming up is just a circumstance. That, that's data, that's reality happening. Your part of the play is your decision on how to respond. And unconditional responsibility is, as Stephen Covey said, that you always have the ability to respond. You're not guilty. I mean, most people think of responsibility as guilt. Well, who's responsible for this problem? Mm -hmm. Well, you're not responsible. I'm not saying you're responsible for the problem. What I'm saying is you are able to respond to the problem. Uh, another example people use, well, we were in a meeting and the meeting ran over. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. well, the meeting ran over, but you chose to stay. Mm -hmm. that, that's what you don't say because, you see, all of us 
want to be innocent. Mm-hmm. There's a natural drive to to claim innocence. It's like, well, it wasn't me. It was the problem that prevented me from leaving, or it was the meeting that prevented me from departing on time. But the truth is, the price of innocence is impotence. Because when you tell the story in a way that makes you innocent, you're also telling the story in a way that puts you out of control. You are not, you're not the, the the main character of this movie, so to speak. You know, you're telling, you're watching the movie from the sidelines. That that's not a very powerful way to tell the story of your life, and it's not a very powerful way to tell the story of your company. So, if you want to lead people to accomplish great things, then the first step is to start telling the story with us, this group, the, all of us being the main characters of the story, and us having the ability to respond to our circumstances creatively, ethically, in a way that ennobles us, in a way that we feel proud of ourselves. So if we can model responsibility and speak that language of responsibility, then we as leaders are teaching the, the first of these seven qualities of consciousness. Now, the second quality is what you call essential integrity. Can you tell us about that? When you're a leader, you start by explaining the concept, just like you and I are doing now. It's, it's, not, it's not a theory class. It's just a little explanation for why this makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's step one. Step two is to demonstrate that you live by that concept, that, that is really a, a life commitment, and it's not just a declamation. It's not a speech. And then the third is to invite people to commit to the same concept and hold them accountable. But hold them accountable for their sake. And that's what a a wonderful leader does. And that's how a leader creates a community of commitment, which is able to accomplish great things. Now, passing to your second concept or the the question you just asked, uh, it's related to essential integrity. And perhaps because of my experience in Argentina, it's, it's not oriented towards success. When you uh, are so committed to accomplishing any goal and you have no ethical constraints, sooner or later you're going to be, in my view, a criminal. You're going to be uh, violating other people's rights to life, liberty, and property. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I take I take those those original words of the Declaration of Independence very serious because they are deadly serious when when that gets broken uh, mass murder ensues all the time so the idea that we're not here just to accomplish a result but but we're here to accomplish a result in a noble way in a way that respects other people in a way that makes us proud in a way that allows other people to grow and be better human beings the point for me is to follow ethical principles, and within those ethical principles, establish what are appropriate goals. The, the, the right subordination is first, nobility and virtue, and second, effectiveness and accomplishments. Uh, today in the business world, that is, that, that's considered too lofty. It's, it's well, you know, we, we're, we're in the real world, like real politics. And, and, you know, this comes mostly from political science, you know, today people justify any violation to the constitution because, um, well, you know, it's for the children or it's for security or it's for whatever. And there are always tyrannical explanations for 
for why it's it's necessary to break the rules of, of ethical principles. But in business, it happens every day where people say, oh, well, you know, we know this is a little corrupt. You know, we know we shouldn't lie to our customers about whether we have the goods in inventory. But hey, you know, we can make the sale and it's only going to be a couple more days and, and they will never find out because we'll say it was a delay in the delivery. So it's, it's so easy to slip and to hear what I call the siren songs of success. You know, uh, Odysseus had to tie himself to the mast because he knew that those sirens were going to lure him to disaster. And there, the, the sirens of success always lure us to disaster if we're not tied to a very strong ethical mast. And my, my, my recommendation to leaders is that before they set an objective or before they, they set a vision as the primary driver of the company, they start by asking themselves and their community, what is going to make us proud? What, what will ennoble us? What will make us feel that we are contributing in a way that our children will be proud of us, our, our society will be proud of us? And then with that in mind, say, what's the best we can do to accomplish this? I like that. What will make us proud and our children and our society proud? So before you even get to thinking about financial objectives, think about what in the long run is going to make us proud? <laughs> well, paradoxically, uh, there's a ton of research that says when you do that, you make a lot more money too. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, 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 a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing because in the long term, there's perfect alignment with, between financial objectives and ethical objectives. But it does require that in the moment, you forego some opportunities. And with finances, it's exactly the same. You always have short-term opportunities to maximize financial gain, but they are not what's going to make you financially successful in the long term. Very few companies succeed in the long term unless they have some standard of conduct that uh, will make people proud. Uh, And I feel that's true in an individual life and that's true in an organization. Now, the third quality, and it's the, the last of the three character attributes, is ontological humility, which is kind of surprising. I think most people wouldn't assume that's a, an important part of leadership. Yeah. Well, let, let me define ontological humility because it's very different than what uh, most people call humility. And, and I'm going to use a famous character to, 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 to give you a shock. I'll say Dr. House is ontologically humble. Hmm. Uh, I mean, when I I ask people how they think of Dr. House, the the TV character, uh, everybody says, oh, he's an arrogant prick. He's he's (laughs) insufferable. He's, uh, you know, full of himself and so on. And, And, you know, that's true. He's not a nice character in the normal interpersonal way. But he's absolutely committed to truth. He is a true scientist. And whenever, I mean, he can build any uh, diagnostic or any theory about what may be afflicting the patient, but the moment they do a test and the test comes different than he expected, he doesn't take a millisecond to drop his theory, surrender to the fact and say, we need to keep looking. This was wrong. Let's look for what's next. So what I mean by being humble is by recognizing that facts trump concepts. The, the reality is, uh, is, 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 is the king, and, and you 
you cannot impose your theories over reality and you cannot impose your desires over logical consistency. And let me give you an example of how understanding the difference between objective reality and subjective experience makes a huge difference in business. I'll start with with my favorite story with my daughter, who, uh, Michelle, when she was three years old, she would not eat broccoli. And when I asked her, but Michelle, you know, what, what, what's wrong? Why don't you eat broccoli? She said, no, no, no. Broccoli is yucky. That's why I don't <laughs> like it. And, and I would tell her, but, but Michi, I like broccoli. And she said, oh, daddy, why do you like yucky things? She, she, was, she was puzzled. How could, I, how could I be so stupid? I mean, how could I like something that's clearly yucky? So for Michelle, broccoli is yucky. And yuckiness is inherent to broccoli. Now, when you're three, that's cute. When you're 43, that's dangerous because you start thinking that the world is the way you see it and not the world it is. And, and the typical example is with an idiot. Now, I, I, you probably know some idiot, and I'm going to make a big bet that that idiot does not think like you. Do you uh, let me check. Do, do you know any idiots that think exactly like you? No, they're, they're a complete opposite of me. <laughs> exactly. Now, now here comes here comes the, the the key question: Do they think different because they are idiots, which is the three-year-old logic, or do you call them idiots because it irritates you that they think different than you, mm, yeah. which is the forty-three mature logic? So, being ontologically humble is to realize that there are no idiots. There are only people that disagree with me. Now, these people may be making logical mistakes, they may be unaware of facts, they may be making uh, mistaken inferences, which I can demonstrate it through rigorous uh, analysis. But, but in principle, I, I just don't like that they disagree with me or, or it bothers me that they disagree with me. Otherwise, I would say, hmm, I think you're mistaken, but I wouldn't say you're an idiot. So understanding that and taking this humble position of I see the world as it appears to me. I don't see the world as it is. I, I, I have elements of, of science to check my perceptions. So the, 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 that's why I say that House is ontologically humble. He is absolutely committed to truth, much more than he's committed to save his face. As arrogant as he might seem, he is very open to new evidence. He's very open. And it doesn't matter where it comes from. He's not focused on, on administrative authority uh, because uh, whether you are a king or whether you are a slave, the, you know, it doesn't matter for the truth of your statement. Two plus two is four and it doesn't matter who says it. And I think that many leaders delude themselves thinking that because they have authority, they are right, or people have to consider them right because they have the right to make some decisions. And, and that, that is a very dangerous confusion, which I, well, I have tried to dispel with my book and, and in my consulting practice. That's similar to, or maybe the same thing as a concept that I think of as intellectual integrity, where if I'm going to have a discussion with someone who has a different viewpoint from me, if I don't, number one, feel that they uh, or that we're both willing to acknowledge that, hey, I'm coming into this with certain preconceived ideas and I think I'm right 
and you think you're right, and but I'm willing to acknowledge that one of us seems to be wrong, and maybe that's me, then there's no point in us having a, a conversation. And even if I can just express that, it tends to make the other person more willing to have similar feelings, and then we can have a, a meaningful conversation. Exactly. I mean, that's beautifully said. That, that intellectual integrity um, is what enables communication and coordination at the human level. Uh, otherwise, you are down to the law of the jungle and you're not talking, you're simply using force. But uh, evidence, logic, argumentation, that's what makes us human because we can see multiple points of views, we can integrate them, we can think together, we can apply standards to our thoughts in an objective or uh, non-subjective manner and we are free from that um, impulse to say, I'm right because it's me. Well, we've only had time to talk about the first three of the seven qualities, but those are the three foundational uh, qualities. They're mm-hmm. the three character uh, qualities. And you spend some time in your book talking about how you it's more important to uh, to be rather than to do. And the next three uh, that if folks want to find out more, that we, they can get your book, have to do with uh, doing things. But let me ask this as we wrap up. Your title, Conscious Business, How to Build Value Through Values, seems to be based on the notion that capitalism and business can actually be a force for good in the world, even though many people think the opposite. <laughs> oh, well, we're going to need a whole other podcast <laughs> to talk about that. <laughs> but let me, let me just be very, very clear. Capitalism is the only force for good that can exist in the world for social cooperation. Anything else in theory and in practice than uh, the freedom for people to transact as they see fit using their property is evil. But through free market enterprise, it's, it's simply... A, a social mechanism that's derived on the ethical principle that you don't use violence against people that haven't attacked you. Now, you can start from that very simple unconditional respect principle, and naturally the system that will come out, it's, it's a free market, free enterprise, free exchange uh, system, and capitalism is simply saying that nothing has pulled more people out of poverty ever than the relationship between capital and labor. Saving, investment, and the provision of tools to workers is the secret of improving the standard of living of humanity. I cannot emphasize any more strongly, there's nothing more noble, in my view, than being a businessman. There's nothing more upholding of human dignity than trading freely in the marketplace where everybody has to feel they're better off to make the transaction. I, I don't find the political service uh, something admirable at all. Uh, when people take pride of, well, I've been all my life in public service, I, I, I find that that is a very painful statement because I would like businessmen and women to stand up and say, I've been all my life in business service. I've been serving my customers, and through the service of my customers, I've been serving humanity. Well, I think that's well put. The book is Conscious Business, How to Build Value Through Values. Fred Coffin, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thank you very much.
And in our show notes for this episode, we will put a link to Fred's book and also a link to some wonderful articles that he has published on LinkedIn. You'll find both of those in our show notes. You can also follow Fred on Twitter, where he is at Fred Kaufman, K-O-F-F-M-A-N. If you're not already subscribed to Engaging Leader, you can find us in Stitcher as well as in iTunes. If you want to subscribe in iTunes, we'll redirect you to the right place if you go to engagingleader.com forward slash iTunes. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Steele, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.